Hello, everyone, and welcome to day 51 of our EC Daily Devotional. I'm Pastor Jonathan, and today we have the privilege of going through Numbers 21 and 22. As we continue journeying along with Israel as they march through the wilderness and on their way to the promised land today, we have two particular passages that show us their continual march that is met with disobedience and God's judgment, but then also the victories that God has promised. And then we have one of maybe the more famous stories from Numbers in chapter 22. I want to look at those quickly today, glean some uh, some truths from these chapters and apply them so that we can more faithfully follow Jesus and be the people that God has created and redeemed us to be. So if you have already read, or maybe if you have not yet, uh, here's some things that I think are really important that we see in the text today. So Israel is marching again on their way uh, throughout the wilderness into the promised land. And you start in chapter 21 seeing their conquests, and it's met with victory. It says, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of the Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord He did the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah, which means destruction in Hebrew. And what we need to see here is throughout this conquest, we've actually already covered this uh, earlier in Numbers, is there are things when they are vowed to the Lord, things that are devoted both to the service of the Lord, and in this case, in conquest, of nations. There are times when people and cities, all that is in them are devoted to the Lord for destruction. And I think there's a lot of questions often about this. And it's important that we have a biblical understanding. When God commands, and in this case allows, in the case of a vow, for the destruction of people, uh, I think a lot of Secular mindsets would say, wow, how can you trust in a God who would command the destruction of people and call for the wiping out of entire nations? And we don't have to run from that, friends. We we should be people who cling to every word of the Lord. And in this case, we must remember these are rebellious, pagan, wicked people who, like us, outside of God's mercy and grace, deserve the just wrath of God due our sins. And God is using the people of Israel to be the instrument of his judgment. Just like in Israel's history, later, he's going to use the Assyrian nation to be the instrument of his judgment on Israel for their idolatry and disobedience. So we need to have a biblical understanding of God's holiness and divine wrath. As we continue on in the chapter, 
we have this very unique story of, well, Israel's had a victory and, you know, you expect them to be, this is amazing. We trust you, Lord. You are the best. But what happens? (laughs) Well, from Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the people became impatient on the way. And this sounds like Israel, but if we're quite honest, this also sounds like us. How many times have we seen God do miraculous things and we immediately complain about something in our lives and forget how amazing and gracious God has been to us? And so what do the people say? Now, this is interesting. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And remember, God is providing them manna. He's provided them quail, as we saw a few chapters ago. He has provided water from a rock. And what do these people say? There, there is no food and no water, but then they have to remember, oh no, God is providing food. So they call the food that he does provide worthless. And the rebellion and the, the evil inclination of the heart that this shows us in all of us, this gracious kindness, this daily provision of God, they call worthless right to God's face. Well, so what does God do? He justly sends fiery serpents, snakes among the people to bite them. And it says that many of the people of Israel died. Again, the justice of God. And it says that the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So the good thing about God's discipline and justice to his people is when you are a child and your father disciplines you, by God's grace, that also brings you to the place of repentance. And this is what the people of Israel do. And they ask Moses to pray for them, and he does. And what does God say? He says to to make a bronze serpent that's raised up and when it's raised up, people can look at it. So when the, they are bitten, they will see it and they shall live. Now, what is really awesome about this particular story is this is the same story that's quoted by Jesus when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And Jesus is talking specifically about himself. And in John 3 verses 14 and 15 Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so we see a picture of the gospel already here in Numbers 21, that God, while he has every right to completely wipe out this people that are so disobedient, he in his mercy and grace delivers to them a remedy to their sinful actions and sinful heart. And that remedy is for the people to lift up their eyes to 
a picture of the curse. And this is what we have in the gospel for all of us, for all of us to have eternal life when we deserve eternal condemnation. We are to look up at the one who is on the cross, who has become a curse for us, and we shall live, all of us who believe in him. And chapter 21 closes with Israel continuing on their march, and they are moving from city to city, defeating kings. And I love this because there's songs that accompany this victory march, particularly when Israel comes uh, to uh, Sahon, the king of the the Amorites in Numbers 21.21. They actually say, can we pass through your land? We won't touch anything. We we just want to pass through your land. And, And he he says no, and in verse 24, it says, Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword, took possession of the land from the Arnon to the Jabok, as far as to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. So Israel takes all of this, and they sing this song, and, and, and it's just this reminder of what God has done. And then, closing out chapter 21, there's again this victory march. Uh, as we see, it says, Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent to spy out Jazir, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Adrea. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and all his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sahon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. Now, I think this tells a lot about how Christians should sing. The people of God sing as people who are victorious because God has granted victory. And we walk in that victory. We we walk in what God has promised. And so as cities lay waste because Israel is marching through them and conquering them. There's also this reminder of what God has promised beforehand. And that's how the chapter closes. God is saying to Moses, don't fear. I've given them into your hand. This land is the land that he's promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this is how we sing church not as people who hope to be victorious, but to people who have already been given victory in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it is the same song that the Israelites sing, that our enemies have been laid waste. And when it looks like that's just not the case in our world right now, don't let what we physically see hinder the our, our minds from believing in the reality that The serpent has been defeated. That evil one, our enemy, has been disarmed by Jesus Christ. And chapter 22 is quite an interesting one. And I I want to hopefully give us a couple things to really see here. So what happens is, as Israel's going out and, and conquering these cities and kings, well, word starts to spread. 
And so the word spreads to uh, Balak, the son of Zippor, about what all Israel is doing. And the word says in verse 3 of chapter 22, Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox ox licks up the grass of the field. So what does Balak do? Well, he knows about this prophet, pagan prophet named Balaam. And he, he basically wants Balaam, who has this reputation of bringing curses upon nations that seemingly work, he wants to bring Balaam in to pronounce a curse on Israel so that they can't conquer uh, Moab. And he sends for Balaam. And, well, what's interesting is the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh, speaks to Balaam. And as he's speaking to Balaam, he says, do not go with these people as Balak is sending messengers to try to get Balaam to come to him and pronounce this curse on Israel. Do not go with these people. Don't do it. And they, uh, Balak sends again as these messengers are unable to get Balaam to come and doesn't happen, then sends them again. And it, this part of the passage of Balak trying to get Balaam to come to him, it closes with these words. It's, it's interesting, right? It says, God came to Balaam at night. So this is after Balak has sent twice. This is now the third. If, he says, if the men have come to call you, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So the Lord says, only do what I tell you to Balaam. So Balaam rose in the morning and sat on his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. Now this sounds like he's doing what God tells him to do. But then verse 22, it says, God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. So why does God get angry with Balaam? Is he not doing what he told him to do? Well, I think it's interesting if you know the story, what's going to happen, uh, and that's going to unfold in the following chapter, so I don't want to spoil too much of it if you're unfamiliar with it, but Balaam is doing what God commanded by going with the, peop- the messengers of Balak, but he has intentions that are not to be obedient to the Lord, and I trust that that is why the Lord's anger, anger is kindled Against him. So what happens? Well, the angel of the Lord is standing in the way, in the road, with his sword drawn. This is a picture of a manifestation of God's presence. And this presence of God is going to destroy Balaam. But Balaam doesn't see him. Only the donkey of Balaam sees him. And Balaam is trying to get his donkey to go, and he's hitting the donkey and still doesn't see the angel of the Lord. And finally, after three times of doing this, the Lord opens the donkey's mouth and says to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not 
your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day. Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand and he bowed down and fell on his face. And so there's a lot of jokes that we could use for maybe the old English word for donkey that God even uses donkeys uh, to speak. And so he could certainly use any one of us, right? But the point of this passage is Balaam, so blinded by wicked intentions, is on his way to do what he ought not do. And God is standing in his way. And God uses this animal to keep Balaam from being destroyed. And see, I think this is what we need to understand, friends, is that sin and sinful thoughts and intentions and desires are not the results of our eyes being more open to more possibilities. Sinful thoughts and desires and intentions are the result of our eyes being blinded to the beauty of God and having desires that are for the things of the Lord. This was Balaam's problem. This is our problem from our sinful thoughts. This is the problem of Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3 is not eyes that are opened to more possibilities because of sin. It's eyes being blinded because of sin to the beauty and glory of God. And so I want you to keep that in mind as this story continues unfolding, because it seems like, okay, Balaam's doing what God has called him to do. Well, don't let what his outward obedience might say when there's inward disobedience going on. Um, Friends, are your eyes open to the glory and beauty of God, or are you blinded to it? Because if you're blind to it, Even your outward ritual of religion is not fooling God. Do you trust in him today? Uh, I know this is maybe run a little bit longer than normal, but I pray it's been a blessing to you. And uh, I love you so much, church. I pray that you have a blessed day. Let's lift up our eyes in the midst of our curse for our sin and lift our eyes to Jesus who became the curse for us and is the only remedy for our sin. And I trust that our eyes will be open to his glory and grace and we will sing and fight not in order to obtain victory, but because we have been given it by God. Have a great day, friends.